Hi, it's Michael Sinoff with Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. The title of this interview is called, Finally, A Treatment Plan for Dyslexics That's Not Just a Band-Aid for Their Symptoms. The average person reads by thinking in sounds at a pace of about two to eight words per second. The average dyslexic doesn't think in sounds. They think by picturing images at a rate of 32 images per second. Because they think at this much faster pace, when they come across a word they don't have an image for, like the words the and and, they stumble into a state of disorientation that we see as dyslexia. Mixing letters, seeing things backwards, etc. But fortunately, there's help. Ron Davis, author of The Gift of Dyslexia and a Dyslexic Himself, says dyslexics are just highly creative people who think differently than most. So we can't expect traditional methods for reading to work for them. And in this audio interview, you'll hear a revolutionary approach that does work. You'll also hear the truth behind the kind of self-esteem problems dyslexics may run into in the only way that works to prevent or fix that damage. You'll learn all about the details about Ron's breakthrough method, where it's being used today, and the amazing results you can expect to see. You'll learn a simple five-second exercise that will give you a hands-on perspective of what dyslexics feel every day. You'll learn the surprising reason why words that trigger dyslexia are basically the same as the Dolch sight word list for second graders, and what that means for parents and teachers of dyslexics. You'll learn the simple technique dyslexic can use to reorient themselves and get back on track when they feel disoriented. Well-meaning parents, teachers, and friends of dyslexics may unknowingly be making their loved ones' problems worse, but if you know the facts and the triggers, you can put an action plan in place that will actually work for dyslexics of every age, and in this audio, you'll learn how to do that. Now, let's get going. Hi, this is Chris Costello, and I've teamed up with Michael Senoff to bring you the world's best health-related interviews. So if you know anyone struggling with their weight, with cancer, diabetes, ADHD, autism, heart disease, or other health issues, send them over to Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. Ron, wonderful to have you with us today. Oh, it's definitely my pleasure. I'd like to start with your personal story because it is so powerful. What happened to you growing up? Well, I wish I could remember. Dyslexia is what I'm most famous for. But when I started out in life, I had a problem that was much more severe than dyslexia. When I was an infant, my mother was told that I was a canner's baby. Dr. Leo Canners coined the word autism in 1943. I was never actually labeled autistic because I'm too old for that, but I was called a canner's baby. And then in school, I got labeled uneducatable when I was 12 years old, and I carried the label uneducatable mental retardation until I was 17 when I received IQ testing. And at that point, they realized that I was intelligent. I got speech therapy where I learned to speak, and then they tried to teach me how to read. Well, The kind of reading training I got more than 50 years ago essentially is the same kind of thing that they're still trying to do. It didn't work 50 years ago, and it's not working today. And it wasn't until my wife and I had retired from our career in real estate, and I was working as an artist, that I realized that the problem that I had, I was creating it myself on the inside. And I was looking for what I was doing that would be causing the symptoms to occur, and That led me to a discovery that has changed my life, and it's the subject that's in the gift of dyslexia. And what I discovered was how dyslexia actually works. 
and I'm surprised that it had been around for so long that no one else had discovered or even stumbled across the actual causes of it. I had been working as an artist, and what I realized was that when I was at my artistic best, I was at my dyslexic worst. Going clear back to when I was 18 years old, I was told that I was never, ever going to learn how to read and write. And the reason for that was that when I was being born, the doctor used instruments and he pinched my head and he damaged that part of my brain that I would need to use to learn how to read and write. And for me, that explained why I was different from everyone else. And I really liked that idea. But when I told my mother that that's what happened, she said that did not occur. She said that my birth happened so fast there was a time for instrument. I had to decide whether to believe my mother or believe what the doctor said. And I chose to believe the doctor. So anyway, later what I'm realizing is that if my problem is a structural problem like brain damage or missing parts of my brain, the symptoms would have to be consistent. In other words, there's nothing I could do that would make it better or worse on an irregular basis. And what I realized was I was actually doing something that changed the condition. And my thinking was, well, if I do step A, B, and C, I can make it worse. If I do step B, C, and A, maybe I can make it better. And this kind of thinking made me a researcher in the field of dyslexia. And once I started looking, it didn't take very long to find an answer. And what I discovered was what we now call orientation. I discovered that when I get confused, I get into what is called a disoriented state. In other words, that part of my brain that distorts perception turns on. And when that's turned on, what I perceive is not what is actually there. And this state of disorientation, what I originally discovered was how I could turn it off on the inside how I could literally, on the inside, intentionally make the words said still. Well, essentially, this state of disorientation, everybody would recognize it as dizziness or car sickness. Oh, if you've ever had the experience of sitting in a vehicle that's stationary and something outside your vehicle moves and you have the sensation you're in motion, the same part of the brain that creates that phenomenon for almost everyone is what we dyslexics use to make dyslexia with. And when we get sufficiently confused, that part of our brain turns on, and our brain is no longer seeing what is there. Our brain is seeing what we think should be there. And it's not just that. Our brain also doesn't hear what our ears hear. It hears what we think our ears should be hearing. Our balance and movement senses are actually reversed, and our sense of time is either speeded up or slowed down. And all of the symptoms of dyslexia are symptoms of disorientation. And the people that say that, I would like to say, if you want to experience what dyslexia is really like, hold a book at arm's length above your head, look up at it, spin around real fast ten times while looking at the book, sit down in the chair and try to read it. It has to do with the feeling of confusion. Emotion is what stimulates the disorientation. And for dyslexia, it is the emotion of confusion. So we look at something and we don't recognize what it is. And that non-recognition causes us now to try to figure out what it is that we're looking at. Therefore, the disorientation turns on, and that word will be looked at from every possible angle that it can be looked at from. If we're looking at real objects, this system actually helps us. But if we're looking at a two-dimensional word, it actually causes the symptoms of dyslexia. What are the symptoms of dyslexia for people that are just learning about this? Well, when a child is trying to learn how to read, they reverse words, they reverse letters, they leave words out of context. They skip over words, they change them into something else, and oftentimes they will get very, very frustrated in an attempt to read because you will stop them and say, okay, that is the word the, and the next time they see 
say it, they say that, and you stop them again and you say that is the word the. Probably the best single word to use to describe a dyslexic child trying to learn is the word frustration. They're going to be more intelligent than the average child. They're going to be more creative than the average child. Yet everything in regard to learning in school is going to be more difficult for them. Well, if they're in an oriented state, they're seeing what is actually there. But when the confusion reaches the point where they then become disoriented, they're changing it around. Words can literally disappear off the page. I had a child once tell me that the words get up off of the paper, they walk over to the edge of the desk, and they jump off, and they're crawling around down on the floor. I know the mechanics of disorientation. I'm not going to say, hey, you're wrong, because that's saying to him he's crazy. He actually sees that as reality. So what I will say to him, instead of saying that you're wrong, I will say, okay, what you need to do is you need to become oriented so the words get back on the paper. A dyslexic is primarily an individual that thinks with images as opposed to thinking with sound. And a person who's thinking with sound, they're thinking about the same rate of speed that they would speak. They're thinking between two and eight words per second, where a dyslexic individual that's thinking with images, the images are occurring 32 pictures per second. Well, the old adage that one picture is worth a thousand words, and they're thinking 32 words per second while someone else is thinking very quickly, word thinking is only doing eight, you can already see that we're four times faster than they are in our thought process. In addition to that, we are thinking with the significance of what is out there, and other people are simply thinking with sound, and the significance has to be added later. So not only is our thinking faster, it is deeper and more concise than the thinking of someone who is simply talking to themselves through what it is that they're thinking about. So our thinking is faster and more complete, and also we have a tendency to be more creative. So you put all of these things together, and what we can get out the backside of this is an individual who, if they're allowed to learn the way that they like to learn, can master things faster than most people can even understand them. The problem is the way they teach school, school is taught to people who think with the sounds of words. And if you don't think or can't easily think with the sounds of words, you're already at a disadvantage going into the system. And usually by the time you're in third grade, you just feel totally destroyed by the system. Now, you're not aware that you're feeling destroyed by the system. You're aware that your self-esteem isn't very good, and you don't think that you're as smart as other people, and you just have real poor or low self-esteem. And this is a very important factor because the person's self-esteem essentially is going to determine what it is that they will seek in life. The kind of success and the kind of career that a person will have in life is going to be dictated by that person's self-esteem. Well, when you consider how many people that have dyslexia, the dropout rate is actually a little higher than we would recognize of people that have dyslexia. I will say this, the majority of people that have dyslexia don't know that they do. It happens so rarely to them that no one has ever realized that this is an individual who disorients when they're trying to learn or trying to read. Well, over the years, the different organizations have given us different figures. From my perspective, I would say about 25% of the population have dyslexia to the point where it is realized there's something going on with the person. It might not be diagnosed as dyslexia. It might even be diagnosed as ADD or a math problem or a speaking problem. However, when you consider that probably the majority of people that have dyslexia are not recognized, it's probably closer to 40%. For more interviews on health, 
mind, body, and spirit. Go to michaelsenoffshardtofindseminars.com. That's huge. It is huge. And you know what? If they would simply change the education system by adding to the system the advantages of thinking with pictures as opposed to just word thinking, we would probably see dyslexia disappear. That first week is essentially, from my perspective, we give them the tools that they must use in order to correct the problem. Now, they're not going to be a corrected dyslexic in a week. It usually takes at least a year and sometimes maybe two years for them to do all of the steps that they must do. But it is possible. And when you take someone who's struggling at school and all of a sudden school is easy, they're very motivated to do it. What are your thoughts on what causes dyslexia? Well, I can only give you a theory. I'm not a university and I don't have the resources to chase these things down. But from my perspective, they've known that there are two ways that people think from clear back in the century before the last one. I mean, in the 1800s, they were realizing that there is more than one way that a human being thinks. There's verbal conceptualization, thinking with sound, and nonverbal conceptualization, thinking with images. And most people can do both kinds of thinking, and I think most people do. But because we are human beings, we also have a tendency to specialize. And the dyslexic individuals are primarily picture thinkers to the age of nine. And if you get to be nine years old in the education system that we have today and you're a picture thinker at that point, you're going to be dyslexic for the rest of your life whether you learn how to think with the sounds of words or not. The foundation is laid for the way that you're going to develop. And once that is there, you have to go in that direction. It's very, very hard to be able to change a direction of development as an individual from the inside. Now, the forces around you, in other words, you can do a corrective program and you can change that direction that you're going, but on your own on the inside is very, very difficult to do. So the individuals who are severely dyslexic that go on to be successes are individuals that are willing to put forth maybe 10 times the amount of effort than a normal student or a normal individual. And as a result of that, oftentimes you will find them with PhD degrees because they're very, very pushed. They're very motivated to get it done. And that motivation goes beyond what would stop the average human being. So you will find an awful lot of very well-educated dyslexic individuals that will tell you that, well, life is a struggle and I have to work harder than everybody else, but I can do it. I can get the job done. And what you're seeing there is that mastery where they can master things very easily once they get into their own zone, and they will be at the top of their field. And this is one of the things that we do to try to counter the low self-esteem. The idea, if I work hard enough, I can do anything. Well, I'm not getting it done. That means I'm not working hard enough, so I have to work harder next time. And this perpetuates itself. So it's either that or we wind up selling hamburgers in a fast food restaurant or working in a service station someplace. There's a lot of them in the penitentiaries and mental institutions as well for the same reason. But, you know, that's the bad side of the coin. I agree with that. And what's interesting is we can make an impact. There's something that can be done that can change that whole arena. It can be turned around. And, Ron, I'd love you to give out your website so people that are listening can find you guys. The website is easy and difficult at the same time. It's dyslexia.com, but you spell dyslexia with a Y. It's D-Y-S-L-E-X-I-A. What is the optimal age of intervention if somebody is going to try and get help for their dyslexic child? Well, we have 
have a young learners program where if it's suspected in someone maybe down to the age around four, that intervention can begin then. But if they're going to do a facilitated program, I would say that the youngest would be seven, and it would probably be better if they were closer to nine. On the other end, there is no upper age limit. I have worked with people in their 80s to correct dyslexia. But they don't lose that picture of thinking that you were talking about before if they're past the age of nine? I think we would have to have Alzheimer's or something to lose that aspect of us. It is what is normal and natural for us to do, and it is as normal as breathing for us. It probably is not going to go away. You've got two wonderful books, The Gift of Dyslexia, The Gift of Learning, probably many more that I haven't heard about yet. I've got a new one that's due to come out, and it depends on whether or not our organization is ready to deal with the flood that's going to come. But most of my last few years have been devoted to the autism. It is my own history, and I feel that I had to get through my own dyslexia in order to address the autism aspect. So that's the book that's going to be coming out. The working title is Nurturing the Seed of Genius, and it's what we have to do to allow the autistic individuals to be able to experience life in its whole array, and that is our goal. It's an exciting thing to be involved in. What is going on in this society with these rates of autism? I don't have a theory as to the cause, but I will say that when I was born, the chances of having an autistic child was 1 in 660,000. Now, the chances of having an autistic child is 1 in 93. Now, there are a lot of factors involved in why that figure is so low. And, you know, there are more people looking for it. They change the criteria to determine what it is, all of these things. But according to the World Health Organization, autism is increasing at the same rate worldwide. It's not just something that's happening in America or happening in first world countries. It's happening in third world countries as well. It's happening in places where they're not exposed to heavy metals or pesticides or inoculation. So those kinds of reasons that we hear, I don't think are actual causes because it is appearing in places where they don't exist. Well, I can quote a theory that I've heard that works for me, and uh-huh. this came from Jörg Kulvind. Jörg was a professor of chemistry at a university in Europe, and he wrote a book called Star Children. The book was written many years ago, but it got translated into English. And he has been looking at autism for many years. In 1999, he told me that the incidence of autism within three generations is going to reach 100%. His theory was that it's genetic. He says that it is time for us to go through another genetic change, and it's coming. And if we look at it from his perspective, the way he described it was the helical coil structure that we get half from the mother, half from the father. When those coils reattach in conception, he said that one of the genes only needs to be misplaced slightly, and what will happen is it will move it every time this occurs. So it takes between 40 and 60,000 years for the gene structure to actually get to the point where it can pop off. And his theory is that when it pops off, then we will go through an evolutionary change. This makes more sense to me than the idea that it's caused because of injections or heavy metals. But I think it's going to take a lot more research to establish that as anything more than a harebrained theory from someone who has now passed away. Had I been educatable when I was younger, 
I think I would have pursued theoretical physics. Yes. It, it is the one place where you can use your imagination to its fullest, and then you get to do arithmetic. And for me, math was probably my whole life for many years. In fact, at the age of 12, if you would have asked me and I could have talked, I would have told you I was composed of arithmetic. I was made of mathematics. Well, I used to be ashamed of the idea that my mind was silent, that it didn't speak. But I find that Albert Einstein's mind didn't speak to him, and Nikola Tesla, he didn't think with the sounds of words, and the great physicists in history. I mean, now they're doing specials on Discovery Channel about how autistic Isaac Newton was and how autistic Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo were. It's amazing. Now, Coolidge's theory on them was it was an attempt to make the change, and then it died out. But it was a point in time when the intelligence of human beings was beyond imagination, yet it did not continue. But anyway, kind mm -hmm. of a neat perspective. I wish Coolidge would have written down his theory so that it could now be subjected to more scrutinization, if I can use that kind of a word. You know, the glial cells is a very amazing thing. When they analyzed Albert Einstein's brain, the only thing that they found was, first of all, it was about 22% smaller than a normal brain, but it had much more glial cells than what would be considered normal. In fact, it had like 40% more right. glial cells than what would be considered normal. So the idea, we should be able to look at nothing more than that and be able to determine the preponderance of autism in an infant. For more interviews with the world's top health and medical experts, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. What do people do, Ron, you know, if they have children that are in this current school system? And, you know, I know your organization, the Davis Dyslexia Association, is in many schools, but how do they start changing things? How do they get help for their kids? What do you recommend? There are several different levels that we can approach. Individuals that are involved in homeschooling can get the young learner kids and also the homeschooling kids for working with dyslexia. The public school system, what we have essentially is a K-3 through program. It's called Davis. Davis Learning Strategies, you know, if the school district is interested in pursuing this, it can be set up through our organization where that school will be trained to implement Davis Learning Strategies in their school. So this is something for the public school. The system that we have that was initially developed actually was a program that was created for adults. And the idea that it actually works for children is a wonderful thing, but the individual, first of all, they have to know that they have a problem and they have to want to have a solution for it in order for us to be effective. We have to be able to motivate the individual to want to do the procedures that must be done in order to correct the condition. So usually I would say that a chronological age is about the age of nine. However, there are a lot of younger dyslexics that are older than their chronological age. So in some cases, we can work with individuals down to around the age of seven. So this is what it is that has to be done. Now, all of this is based on a very simple perspective that if you eliminate the reason why the problem exists, the problem will stop existing. And if the problem stops existing, then you don't need to solve the problem because it's no longer there to be solved. So we're not trying to solve this problem. We're simply trying to eliminate the reason why it is there. And we know what that is. And if we've got a minute, I would like to walk you through that if it's possible. That would be wonderful. Well, if this is the case, then I get to ask some questions if it's all right with you. The first question is, how good is your imagination? Terrific. Yeah, if I asked you to imagine an elephant, could you do that? Yes, indeed. What color was it? Pink. <laughs> yeah, pink one. Okay. Erase the elephant and imagine home. Imagine home. You see the place where you now live or you lived before? 
Yes. Okay. Imagine school. Do you see the outside or the inside? I see a gray building. <laughs> okay. Imagine a stack of books. All right. Hardcover, softcover, or mixed? Hardcover. Okay. Imagine a pile of papers. Oh, yeah. Messy or neat? Messy. Okay. Imagine a pencil. Okay. Does it have an eraser? Yes. Okay. Imagine the. Okay. What do you see? You know, I just had to hear it in your voice. I can't really see the word. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, imagine and. Same thing. Uh, imagine a. Uh. That one I can see visually. What do you see? Just kind of a round A. A round A. Okay. Now, in order for us to understand what you just experienced, there are two things that we have to consider first. We have to first consider that language mirrors the thought process. If it did not, language would be way too complicated for anyone to learn. And if we look at language, we see that language is composed of symbols, and a symbol is composed of three parts. What the symbol looks like when we see it, what the symbol sounds like when we hear it, and what the symbol means. The other thing that we have to consider is that there are two methods of thinking. There's verbal thinking, thinking with sound, and there's picture thinking, thinking with images. And when we did this little drill, when I said, how is your imagination, what I was really asking you to do was to shift into your nonverbal thinking mode and slow it down, and there is a, a pink elephant. And then doing this kind of thinking, you can accurately think with home and school and books and papers and a pencil. But you cannot think with the, and, or a uh, doing nonverbal thinking. Now, when I said imagine the, did you feel a little shock of confusion? Yeah, it was very dramatic. I had to hang on to your words to get it. It was very interesting. Okay. That very interesting. feeling that you felt, that feeling, if we look at it from a scientific perspective, that feeling that you felt is actually what causes dyslexia. Because that is the feeling that will cause the dyslexic person to become disoriented. Where that feeling came from is you're thinking with images, and I gave you something that didn't have an image. So what you got was a blank. That feeling that you felt is the feeling of a blank image. Every blank image feels exactly the same, and that feeling is what will trigger a disorientation for a dyslexic person. So when they feel that feeling to the point where it gradually builds, to the point where they can't take it anymore, that's when the disorientation occurs. And when this occurs, their brain is no longer seeing what their eyes see. Their brain is seeing what they think their eyes should see. Their brain is no longer hearing what their ears hear. It's hearing what they think their ears should hear. Their balance and movement senses are reversed, and their clock is either going faster than it should or slower. So what is the answer? The answer to eliminating it is to fill in the blank. Right. So you have a blank for the word the. What we will do is we will use clay and have the person create a model that means the word the. And for them, in the future, when they see the word the, they don't get the blank. They get their creation. They get an image of what it is that they have created, and that just stops the whole sequence from occurring. Interesting. So the clay basically gives the person the ability to connect those dots. Well, essentially, the creative process and the learning process are the same thing. So if we want someone to learn something, what we really want them to do is we want them to create it. And in the process of doing that, they will have it as their own, and they will have it forever. So we use plastic clay. You could use Play-Doh. You could use even red dirt and water if you wanted to. But what we want them to do is we want them to create the meaning of that word. And what is the meaning of the word duck? Well, I've been told by school teachers, well, the is simply a definite article. It doesn't really have a meaning on its own. Then it shouldn't be used because those of us that think with pictures think with meaning. We don't think with what the words look like. We don't think with what the words sound like. We think with the meaning. So if we really 
meaning of the word the. It's not going to be what it tells us in the beginning. We have to go deeper than that. But in most American dictionaries, it defines the word the as meaning that one which is here or which has been mentioned. And that's what we have to create. We have to create that idea with clay. Now, how do you do that? Well, what we do is we discuss with the individual back and forth, back and forth, until they get an idea of what they could create with the clay that would have that meaning. And essentially, there are 217 trigger words in the English that is spoken in America that we don't have pictures for. So we have that job of work to do to master those 217 words. The list was developed over years and years, but essentially, I was playing around trying to figure out why some words caused this to happen and why some didn't. And there were three of us playing around with this idea, and we were making lists of words that were causing it. And at the time that we're doing this, I'm thinking, well, every dyslexic person will have maybe 20 words or so that are triggers for them, and every dyslexic is going to have their own list. Well, after about three weeks of doing this, I realized all of the lists essentially are the same. At that point in time, around our offices, we had a lot of lists of words, and there's one called the Dolch List. Every school teacher in the primary school knows what a Dolch List is. It's 255 words that are supposed to be sight recognizable by a child going into second grade, I think. All of our words were on the Dolch List. There were words on the Dolch List that some of us didn't have, and the question is, why will one word do it and another one not? Late one night, I was going to do an experiment. I took a piece of paper and I drew a line down it, and the first three words that all of us had on our list were the and an uh, or a. So I put those three on one side of the line, and then on the other side, three words I found that none of us had were home, food, and friends. So I was doing experiments, and every time I said the word home, I saw a place where I have lived. But every time I said the, I saw nothing. And every time I said friend, I was looking at a picture of somebody that I knew. And when I said and, I didn't see anything, just like you didn't see anything. And then when I said food, <laughs> I'm late at night, I'm hungry, I'm seeing something to eat. And then when I looked at the word a, again, nothing. And you know how sometimes you realize something and it's like a little flicker of light and then other times it kind of lights up the universe? For me, I had a universe lighter. I'm a picture thinker and here are three words that I have no picture for. I cannot think with this idea. I cannot think with them. So before I went home that night, I had 197 of the words on the Dolch list. And over the years, the 197 grew to 217. And the reason for that is you can put affixes to certain trigger words. And even though the trigger word is no longer triggering, the affixed trigger word still does. So we have the full list of 217. And we're fortunate because like the Germans, they have like 400 words. And you have a lot of centers in Germany too, right? Oh, yeah. And also in Switzerland, we were probably the learning disability correction people in Switzerland. In the Swiss culture, they don't like anything that is second best. So if you try to sell anything that is second best in Switzerland, it's just not going to fly. So even though our program isn't as well known in other places, the Swiss recognize it as the standard upon which all other programs are going to be based. You would think maybe in China or countries where they have a pictographic language, it would not be. But they have to learn a phonetic language first before they get to that. So there are some countries where we see less of it, like Italy. The languages that are based on the Latin will have fewer trigger words, and as a result of that, there will be less dyslexia present. And I have been told by Italians that dyslexia does not happen in Italy, yet my book was translated into Italian like 15 years ago. The book is in Chinese and Japanese and Korean, the pictographic languages, it's there. It's also in Arabic. 
Icelandic. I mean, the country that was the most literate country in the world. You can buy the gift of dyslexia there written in the Icelandic language. Because my journey isn't finished, it's not yet time for me to sit back and really revel in what it is that we have done. At my age, I'm appreciating more and more what other people are thinking. But most of the time when we were doing what we were doing, we were not being liked. We were being heavily criticized. And we had to simply ignore it and realize that the people who are criticizing us are not criticizing it because it doesn't work. They're criticizing it because they don't understand it. When we are newborn, we've just come to this world, and we have about 400 billion brain cells that are all connected to each other. And our first job is to get the neural pathway set up and get our electrical systems working in harmony with each other. In other words, we have to get our hearing and our vision and our tactile senses so that when we're touching something and we hear it and we're looking at it, we perceive it all in the same place. What we're doing is we're forming our natural orientation. And this is what orientation is about, is having all of our systems in harmony with each other. In other words, our vision, our balance, all of those things are accurate. And because we don't have instruction manuals with us, we all develop our own. And what our orientation is, most humans will have a very stable orientation. However, their perceptions are not really accurate. In other words, there is inaccuracy, but because of the consistency, they can function excellently as a human being. With the dyslexic individuals, because when we get confused, we become disoriented, all of the electrical systems are no longer in balance with each other. In other words, what we're seeing isn't what we're thinking, and you know, our hearing is just turned off completely, and our feet are now bouncing up and down, and we're totally unaware of the movement and the motion in our bodies, the tactile kinesthetic senses are gone. Well, when we reorient, all we're doing is we're getting all of that stuff back into harmony. So we have developed over the years a number of different ways to do that. When we're working with children in school, we have something called alignment, which is very easy for them to do, and they do it by having an imaginary self or imaginary person putting their hands on our shoulders and holding us in balance. And the process of doing this, the process of thinking those thoughts and imagining that brings about the person to be back in an oriented state. But we can do it a lot quicker than that if you're a picture thinker by simply putting your imagination. When I said imagine an elephant, you saw a pink one. It is that aspect of us that would see the pink elephant by controlling where that perception point would be, we can control our orientation. So this was the first development was by controlling the placement for the lack of a better word, our mind's eye, the thing that sees our imagination, by controlling where that is. Now, if it isn't moving around, we're going to have consistent perception. It's when it changes location that the perception is suddenly distorted. But see how we're going to be fixing it. We might as well, when we're in an oriented state, make all of our perceptions as accurate as possible. So we do have an optimum orientation point. For everyone, it's slightly different, but we can show them how to find it. And when you're oriented to your optimum orientation point, there is a feeling of well-being that you experience on the inside of you. You feel like you're connected to heaven above and to the center of the earth and everything in between is perfect. And that is our natural orientation. So if there are people listening that are interested in pursuing the step-by-step procedure for doing this with an individual is in the book, The Gift of Dyslexia. And also, when I wrote the book, The Gift of Dyslexia, what I stepped down and visualized 
mother of a nine-year-old child. The child has come to the mother and said, please don't make me go to school anymore. I'm not smart enough to go to school. It's too hard. I can't do it. And this is the kind of thing that breaks a mother's heart. So her natural reaction would be to help the child, which actually makes the problem worse instead of better. So my purpose in writing the book, The Gift of Dyslexia, was so that mother could sit with that book in her lap, read step one, have the child do step one, read step two, have the child do step two. And if they followed the way it's laid out in the book, within a year, the negative part of the dyslexia is going to be gone. Now, they're going to be dyslexic for the rest of their lives, but they're going to have the gift part. The negative part, that's what we're interested in getting rid of. Interestingly enough, it's done more out of the book in third world countries than in first world countries because first world countries are used to having the experts do it so that you don't have to get involved with it. And the list of facilitators in every state in the United States is on the website. So dyslexia.com, dyslexia with a Y. Once you're in there, you can find, I think in Southern California, there's more than a dozen facilitators there. And because you're not really in Southern California, not in Northern California, you're kind of that central section. There are facilitators even there. Well, Ron Davis, thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to your next book. Chris, the pleasure is all mine. I mean, this is, for me, a dream that is coming true, and because I get to talk to your people, if there's only one there that is suffering from dyslexia and is helped by this, my time is very, very well spent. So the gratitude is really mine. Thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's the end of our interview, and I hope you've enjoyed it. For more great health-related interviews, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. That's the end of our interview with Ron Davis. I hope this has been helpful. And for more wonderful interviews on health, wellness, and nutrition, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com.